Welcome to the Flight Safety Detectives. Hosts John Golia and Greg Fife, two of the world's most respected aviation safety experts, talk all things related to aviation and aerospace. This podcast and the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel are brought to you by the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, PAMA, and Avemco Insurance, a world-class provider of aviation insurance and your one-stop for all general aviation insurance needs. Get a customized quote at avemco.com or give them a call at 888-879-0389. Tell them you're a listener of the show and receive a 5% discount. Now it's time to buckle up because it's wheels up for the latest episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Well, hello, John. It's another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Uh, We're missing Todd. He's missing in action. So it's just you and me today. And uh, I think we've got a pretty good show set up for not only today, but the following show, because we're going to dissect a little bit two accidents that occurred back in the 90s, early 90s, involving the Embraer 120 operated by Atlantic Southeast Airlines. Uh, These two accidents that we've picked um, bring home a couple of things that we've talked about over past shows with regard to thorough and methodical inspections and maintenance work. And um, and I think that when we finish wrapping up the second accident, which will play sequentially with this accident that we're going to dissect today, um, we're going to talk about where the issues lie and where things need to be improved with regard to inspection processes, not only out in the uh, field with the maintenance techs, but also with the manufacturers. Yes, you know that in the maintenance is a process, and the process starts with the manufacturer. The manufacturer has a a role in the designing and the uh, of the airplane and the designing of the the maintenance functions that need to be employed to keep the airplane in an airworthiness condition. And all too often, or too often, maybe is a better way of saying it, we see that the the manufacturer doesn't rise to the level that he needs to in order to make their repairs and their inspection processes robust enough to catch uh, these failures. And we've seen it in inside turbine engines. We've seen it in landing gear. Uh, we've seen it in many, many systems over time. And it just keeps popping its ugly head up for an assortment of reasons. You know, there's a lot of pressure on the manufacturers to design these repairs uh, that don't expend unlimited resources. You know, you can't spend all your money on one on one repair. So you design them to catch the problems that you see. And Mm -hmm. sometimes there's problems you don't see. Complicated process on the part of the manufacturer and on the part of the uh, airline. And the FAA should be the checks and balance in there. And oftentimes they don't catch it themselves either. So it's, it's, uh, it's not an easy process sometimes. And it's not straightforward sometimes. Okay, so this is a good example of uh, one of those 
lapses that involve uh, the airline and the manufacturer. And this case study that we're going to talk about today involved a Southeast um, and Atlantic Southeast Airlines airplane. It was a, at that time, it was a commuter uh, being operated in the early 90s. Um, it was a flight from Jackson uh, Hartsfield Airport um, heading to Brunswick, Georgia. It's not a very long flight. Um, there were 23 people on board, including the crew, and uh, everything seemed normal or ops normal, if you will, as the airplane had uh, had taken off, climbed altitude. And um, and as the uh, the airplane neared Brunswick, Georgia, uh, the crew had experienced a problem with uh, one of the propellers, one of the systems on the airplane. Um, the prop basically ended up being kind of a runaway prop situation where when they pulled the power back to the flight idle position, of course, the propellers will stay in a positive thrust position. But in the aftermath of the investigation, the NTSB found based on cockpit voice recorder, sound spectrum analysis, and other information that in fact, as the crew pulled that power back to a flight idle position for the descent, the propeller blades actually went into a position that were below flight idle. And that is a critical issue uh, with controllability in this airplane, John, because as you and I talked briefly before we got onto, uh, onto the program, um, it creates a barn door effect out there on one side of the airplane. Well, Race, you wanted to have, ideally you want to have some pulling on the prop meaning the prop is still trying to pull air back across the wing, even when it's at the minimum setting. And when you go below that minimum setting, that this propeller, which I think is like 13 feet, six inches, whatever, whatever, it's pretty big. Yeah. When it gets to below uh, that minimum thrust pulling effect, it becomes then a big wall. It's spinning around and it's effectively a big 13 foot piece of plywood out in front of the wing and it drastically show, slows down the airplane on that side and starts to put you in a spiral. And the NTSB looked at a variety of different things with regard to that point exactly where they were looking at flight control issues and whether or not there were a problem with the actual flight controls versus uh, basically the flight controls being blanked by the propeller and the position of those blades, which created that barn door effect like you were talking about. Uh, unfortunately, the, you had a very experienced crew fly in the airplane. What, uh, what really brought attention to this accident when the crew lost control trying to get the airplane down, uh, they couldn't control that propeller. They knew they couldn't make it uh, to an airport. They tried to look for an open field and eventually lost control of the airplane. The airplane crashed in a field and killed everyone on board. The notoriety that was brought to this accident was the fact that there was a NASA astronaut, Sonny Carter, on the airplane. But more importantly, there was senator, a senator on board, John Tower. And this really became known as the John Tower accident uh, because he was on the airplane. And, and when you start looking and examining uh, the facts, conditions, and circumstances, what the board found 
was that there was a deficiency in the design of the, the propeller control unit by the propeller manufacturer, Hamilton Standard. And in the, looking at the deficiency, um, it caused uh, the basic uh, loss of control, pitch control of those propeller blades. Yes, you know, and, I, and uh, this engine, it's a Pratt Whitney Canada PT6, is a workhorse in this industry. And it's used across uh, the industry in a whole host of airplanes. I wanted to count them, but it, they, the numbers started to get up there. Yeah. Uh, it's just everywhere. It's just a re reliable workhorse. But the thing that does change on every one of these installations is the propeller. The propeller is the differentiator between where this thing is going to be used. And so that it, there is a different design on every one of these. And in this particular design, at this, in this point in time, they had uncovered some problems that needed to be addressed. And uh, this was one of them. The air going below flight idle in flight with a, with a, uh, a propeller that's now increasing the drag on the airplane is just a recipe for a disaster. And we saw it here. Exactly, John. And, and from a maintenance standpoint, um, there was no real way for a mechanic to determine that the airplane, this particular airplane had flown four previous flights prior to the accident flight. So uh, again, whether or not it actually was felt or had an issue or had even um, a precursor for these other flight crews, apparently they didn't write anything up. The airplane, again, stayed in service. They load these folks up and take off on this particular flight. And all of a sudden now, um, the uh, the prop blades go into uh, this adverse position and the crew loses the airplane. The NTSB not only looked at Ham Standard or Hamilton Standard, the manufacturer, for a faulty design, but they questioned where was the FAA in this process? Did they set certification criteria that would have accommodated a failure like this in a failure modes analysis as part of the certification basis for this particular propeller. You know, the FAA has, has, has really got a very difficult job on the certification side because the manufacturers just continually design and improve their products uh, to be more efficient, both on the production side uh, and on the operating side. So it's not so easy for the FAA to, to stay on top of this. And it takes a lot of people to do that. And we have seen the ups and downs with personnel in the FAA and the experience levels of those personnel within the FAA. So it really is a difficult job that they have. But that doesn't mean they lay down on the job, which we have seen in, in a number of cases. Most recently, what we, what's been coming out with the 737 MAX over the last few years with how the FAA really wasn't watching what uh, what Boeing was doing and what Boeing's management had been doing to the process internal to the uh, Boeing company. And I'm sure there's other companies in too. I don't want to take a shot at Boeing without saying that there could be others doing the same thing. But we've gone to this lean management and and all of this uh, uh, new, new business processes, that much of which was driven by Jack Welsh at GE. And uh, and many of those many of the leadership 
positions in these companies uh, are products of of the Jack Welch School of Management, so to speak. And it and it's evident that you know we can go back in history and find other you know failures of component parts and question the certification basis and oversight and and that kind of thing, especially during redesign of component parts by a manufacturer. Um, we you know we look at this accident. Was this an isolated event? Fortunately, it was. Um, there was corrective actions taken so it wouldn't happen again, but it cost 23 people their lives in order to uh, to bring it forward. Now, the board also found when they were doing this investigation, and we've gone through this, John, when we talked about the investigation process, and that while, yes, we are looking for the facts, con conditions, and circumstances that support a probable cause and contributing factors, there are always peripheral issues um, that we find in accidents, all of these accidents. And in this case, the board did address uh, a chronic problem uh, of fatigue. They they identified some fatigue issues with uh, this crew having worked uh, long days and, and things like that. And while they stayed in the report, it was not a contributing or causal factor to the accident, uh, didn't uh, degrade their performance any um, with this particular situation. These are the kinds of accidents and these are the kinds of findings that as you look back, which we always want to look back at historical accidents, when we think that there is a trend developing and we saw that in the commuters, the 130, this because it was in the early 90s, this wasn't a 121 carrier yet, it was still being operated under 135 that in this particular instance, these fatigue issues would hopefully get addressed later after 1994. So we get concerned when we're looking at issues, looking back at a lot of accidents where even though this, this issue of fatigue may not be a cause or contributing factor in this particular accident, we're always looking for symmetry in, in systemic issues, if you will. And this would lead to one of those multiple accidents, John, that as uh, after 1994, when we did the special safety study about bringing these 135 commuter uh, carriers up under 121 for a one level of safety, uh, fatigue was a big issue. Flight crew duty time schedules and that kind of thing eventually evolved um, into, uh, into changes in these work rules for these types of flight crews. But getting back to the primary point, again, um, you know, we, we are always concerned about the FAA's oversight. We are always concerned about the FAA's processes, but we are also uh, always concerned about the certification basis because as aircraft evolve, technology evolves, are the regulations keeping up with that evolution of technology so that the certification basis is thorough and methodical so that we don't have these quote faulty or um, or deficient designs, as the board found in this particular accident. Yeah, that those those fatigue issues, you know, that you brought up in 1994 were still with us in 1999. It took better part of five years to finally get that commuter level airline pilot the, the kind of rest that they needed. And it's still not settled because we still have problems in the cargo areas. 
the cargo carriers uh, have not been included under that rule yeah. yet. And we're going to address those. Uh, we're going to talk about that um, in future shows because there are a number of accidents that uh, we have both investigated where backside of the clock flying and um, and that kind of uh, flying, especially with cargo haulers, um, is, a, is still a, con a continuing big issue today. And um, and we dissected a little bit of that when we talked about Korean Air Flight 801 that crashed in Guam 747, where you had a flight crew who was uh, fatigued flying off of a normal, uh, not their normal schedule. So fatigue is going to be one of those issues. And we're going to have a subject matter expert friend of ours uh, on the show to talk about the effects of fatigue. And it doesn't just happen in big airplanes. It happens in general aviation airplanes. And I think it happens more often than not than we've seen. So that's a, another discussion for another day. But just to wrap this up, John, what we want to do with the next accident, which also involved an Atlantic Southeast Airlines aircraft four years later, um, involved another propeller issue. Um, and it was... <laughs> It unfortunately involved the same manufacturer, Hamilton Standard, with a propeller blade. So uh, coming up in our next show, stay tuned for that. We're going to talk about that and then wrap both of these accidents together. So uh, given the fact that it is just you and me, and of course, you can always tell that I'm in an undisclosed location because I always have a virtual background behind me. Um, I'll be on the move again. But um, I want to leave you, my friend, with the last words. Right, and actually words is proper because uh, since our last show, I have done a, a more continuing research into accidents. And over the last year or so, the number of events involving student pilots with an instructor in the airplane or recently starting on their own in in rental airplanes is notable and they're just popping up several a month and i would like to remind everybody that avemco insurance is our sponsor but renters insurance at this point in time is a must mm -hmm. if Absolutely. you want to protect yourself protect your family you need to definitely have yourself a good rental insurance policy so you can call Avemco or, or there's other insurance companies that offer it as well. But please, please protect yourself. You can see people getting really drawn into a, a mess by not having uh, the resources to defend themselves or to protect themselves. So, and then I'll fall back to my standard that I still see. And we have another recent accident involving this see and avoid if you're going to go fly please pay attention to your pre-planning your weather not only where you are where you're going but everything in between another inadvertent imc accident just in the last couple of weeks uh, you need to be paying attention to the weather when you get to the airport do it all again double check what you've already done recheck the weather when you get out to the airplane we've seen i've been doing some work on tires 
mm. higher pressure. Yep. I, I, I really uh, I'm beside myself on what I'm seeing with problems with tire pressure. Haven't not a lot of crashes, but damn close to it. A lot of airplanes being pulled off runways because of flat tires, uh, or soft tires, and the airplane loses control and ends up in the grass and can't get out. Uh, I mean, it's just crazy if we're not checking our tire pressure. And you can't just tell sometimes I'm looking at a tire because yeah. unlike car tires, the sidewalls on many airplane tires are three or four plies thick. So it, they have to be down a lot of air before they start to show the squat that, that you would look for. So make sure you do a good pre-flight. If you can, touch your airplane, touch the flight controls. Then after you get in the airplane and get flying, put that head on a swivel. See and avoid. We had another see and avoid just here recently. We've had a number of near misses, but we had an accident. Uh, not fatal, but we had an accident for see and avoid. You got to put that head on the swivel. Uh, keep your eyes open. That You know, people don't realize how much there is to do while you're flying with an airplane. You can never really relax. You're watching your instruments, watching your headings. Yeah, I mean, you're watching inside. You got to watch outside. You got to pay attention. You have to use all your senses. You got to get your hearing. You can hear problems with the engine. You can sometimes hear problems with the airplane. You need to use all your senses to make sure that you're going to get from point A to B successfully. And if you got people on board, you have a bigger burden. Yeah, please. Absolutely. Please, please fly responsibly, fly safely. To listen or watch more episodes of this show, go to FlightSafetyDetectives.com, the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel, or your favorite place to listen to podcasts. To contact John and Greg about the show, send them an email at FlightSafetyDetectives at gmail.com. And remember, for aviation insurance needs, contact Avemco Insurance at avemco.com or give them a call at 888 888- 879-0389. Mention Flight Safety Detectives and receive a 5% discount. Thanks for listening to the Flight Safety Detectives and remember to always fly safe.